for the prayer. <laughs> There's a good, quick prayer. I like those. Especially when I'm fixing to eat. You know. Well, we're going to look at chapter 7 and 8 today. Uh, chapter 7 mentions the Holy Spirit one time in verse 6. And he says, you died to what once bound you. You've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, I don't know if you all have figured it out yet, but Paul makes a comparison between the Spirit and the law all the way through Romans and all the way through Galatians. The law will break you. The law will destroy you. The law, you can't live it. If you have a list of the Old Testament regulations, uh, 611 of them, 365 negative, the rest positive, and you break one of those, you become guilty of all of them. This means that the whole human race is condemned. There's no way by works of law that we can justify ourselves or be good enough. Um, Being good enough isn't good enough. We can't do that. And so grace has to step in. We have to please God by the Spirit and not by the law. Nobody ever pleased God by the law. In fact, if you'll go over to chapter 3, verse 20 in Romans, you'll see that Paul says it's impossible to please God by the works of the law. But now we're in chapter 7. And the question that's always asked here in chapter 7, 14 and following is whether Paul is talking about a man who is unregenerated, a non-Christian, or whether he's talking about a Christian man. And I don't have any problem with this passage because I know it's about a Christian man. Because the logic of the book says, chapter 5, justified by faith. Chapter 6, how you got into Christ. Chapter 7, now that you're in Christ, you can't live the Christian life. And you'll notice from chapter 7, verse 7 on, there is no mention of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Here's a new Christian trying to live the Christian life, or even an old Christian trying to live the Christian life on his own. Can't be done. There's nobody in this room that's good enough. Nobody in this room that can live the Christian life on your own. Paul makes it clear. Start in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Notice this I am all the way through here. Paul's talking about himself in present tense. He's talking about every Christian in present tense. It really bothers me when I read this passage because I see myself in it. 
I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. You ever catch yourself doing what you hate? Oh, yeah. I do. You always have a choice between good and evil. Why is it that we choose evil? What is there about us that causes that? Well, I gave you my little poem the other day. Remember it? Roses are red, violets are blue. I'm schizophrenic and so am I. Everybody, there's two parts to every personality. There's the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh cannot please God. It can never happen. The only way you can please God is by the Spirit working in you. I think this is a very clear passage that happens to somebody after he's baptized who's trying to do good and fails. Like the frog in the well that jumps up and falls back. Jumps up, falls back. And there's everybody in this room is like that. He says, I, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I have a desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. Nothing good lives in my flesh. The flesh is like a cancer that the Spirit has to get rid of. The Spirit must overcome the flesh. But when you try to live by the flesh, Paul says, when I do sin, it's really not I that do it. But it's sin dwelling in my flesh that causes me to sin. Did you catch that? That means if you're a Christian... You're not liable for your sin. Your flesh is liable. The sin that's in the flesh is liable. See, sin lives in us in the flesh. It would be so easy if we just didn't have flesh. But, of course, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be able to look in the mirror if we didn't have flesh. It appears that when we die, and the spirit and the body separate, the spirit goes somewhere and gets a body. Look at the, the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah show up. They show up in glory, and they're recognized immediately by the three disciples. And people always ask me, will we know each other in the next life? Yeah. We'll know each other. We'll know each other better there than we do here. It's going to be fun. Not not only will we know each other, we'll have privacy whenever we want it. You can show that by just looking at Jesus after his resurrection. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with these guys. They don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. Remember? He appears and disappears. He says... 
go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. He's in Galilee. See, I think we'll have instantaneous transportation after the resurrection. I think it'll be like the angels. Except we'll be free to do whatever we want. And everything we do will be pleasing to God. When you die, your body goes to the devil. Your body rots. It goes back to the dust. God's statement to the serpent in the garden when he took the serpent's legs away from him said, from now on you will eat dust all the days of your life. And we're dust. So he's going to eat our bodies. He gets your body. Satan gets your flesh. But he can't touch your spirit. First John says, the devil doesn't have enough power to touch us. He can't pinch out the candle of the spirit in our lives. Once you think about this, it's no longer I myself who sin, but it's sin living in me that produces that. Now I want to talk about what that is. According to 1 John, there are two kinds of sin, and Paul says it here too. All the way through Romans, up until verse uh, chapter 5, verse 11, he talks about sins, actions, the act of sin. But starting with 5.12 on, he talks about the fact of sin. There's two different things. The fact lives within us and produces the act of sin that we do. You follow? Let me go to 1 John chapter 1. Verse 8 says, if we say we have not sinned, action, the act, then we are a liar and, and the truth isn't in us. But verse 10 says, if we say we have no sin, the fact of sin living in us, we make God out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. So there is sin that lives within, and there is the act of sin, the fact and the act. We, we got the fact of sin from Adam. Yeah, there is original sin. And Adam was the original sinner. And every human being ever born since Adam has Adam's sin born into him. Except for one. And that one was the seed of woman. The virgin shall give birth to a son. And call him Emmanuel, God with us. You know, think about that. Jesus was born like the first Adam without sin. And Jesus had a choice all through his life and never once made the wrong choice. We have sin living in us, so we are going to sin at one time or another. Every kid grows up and sins. When you're a child, you're not liable for the sin of the flesh, the sin that came to you from Adam. But as soon as you commit a sin, you're liable for both. The fact and the act. You follow this? I know it's tough right after eating. Most of your blood is helping digest your food. But maybe there's enough up there that you can, you can follow that there is sin that dwells within us. And there is sin that we do. 
And the amazing thing is, Paul says, we're not the one doing it. It's really sin that lives in our flesh that does it. So that means just like a child is not liable for his sin, we're not liable for our sins. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is wonderful. He says, I know nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So sin produces sin. The fact produces the act in the Christian. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there. And we have a choice every single day between those two, good and evil. And since we are beings who live in flesh... Even though the flesh is not who we really are. The flesh died and was buried back there in baptism. If you're a Christian, your body is dead. But your spirit is alive. And we live not by the body, not by the flesh, but by the spirit. Because by the flesh you can't please God. And Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from the body of this death? Let me tell you what he's referring to here. Maybe some of you have read the Aeneid or the Odyssey. Uh, Homer, the Greek. In the Aeneid, there's a man who commits murder, and they catch him, and they go to where the corpse is, the bloody, beaten, dead body. And they take that corpse and tie it to the man, face to face, arm to arm, leg to leg, drag him outside of town and either throw him in the garbage and leave him there to rot face to face with the man he killed or stone him to death. In the ancient Greek world, this is what they did to punish a murderer. If they caught him, they tied him to the corpse. And what Paul's saying here is, that wherever we go, we're tied to our dead body. We're face to face with ourselves. One of my good friends who's a philosopher from Austin, great philosopher named Sam Reed, Sam said something brilliant one day. He said, wherever you go, there you are. I think that's, I think that's really insightful. You can't get away from yourself. This dead self you buried back there, you're still dragging around with you. That's what Paul's talking about. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? The next line says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been delivered from the bondage to sin. Delivered from the bondage to the sin that lives in our flesh, but it's still carried around with us wherever we go. And so chapter 7 basically says this, two words, I can't. No matter how hard I try, 
I can't live the Christian life. But chapter 8 says, he can. I want you to look at how chapter 8 starts. Notice the word now in verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you believe, you've believed into Christ. If you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ. That's two witnesses. The inner witness of faith and the outer witness of baptism. You are in Christ. Two makes it a fact. At the word of two witnesses in the Old Testament, they could put somebody to death. So two makes it a fact. You are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there is now no condemnation for you. No punishment for you. That's a... We should fall on our knees and thank God for that. There is no condemnation. You will not be punished for what you've done. I I was teaching a class one time on this, and there was a young Catholic man out in the crowd, and he raised his hand and said, but when do we pay for our sins? And I said, Chad, you don't have to pay. Jesus paid it all. And he said, but but when do we pay for our sin? You know, he, he felt like he had to go through something, work through something to save himself. You can't do it that way. That's why Ephesians starts out with the command to sit down. Because you can't do anything to save yourself. God did it. Look at verse 2, Romans 8. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. When I sin now, I don't die for it. When a Christian sins, he's set free. Isn't that incredible? See, it's never been this way before. Before, when Christians, when people sinned, they had to hurry to the priest and offer sacrifice. We don't have to do that. We had a sacrifice already offered once and for all. And so the law of the spirit of life is stronger than the law of sin and death. When you sin now, you're free. You're set free. You're forgiven. I remember reading John Stott once said that when if people don't come after, come up to you after you've studied the book of Romans and said, then then I can sin and I'll still be forgiven. Then I can do anything and God will still forgive me. He said, if they don't do that, you haven't really taught the book of Romans. But he said, the book of Romans also said you died to sin, Romans 6. You can't live in sin any longer. You need to obey God and not the flesh. And that's a tough thing. But it's a decision you make. You follow either the Spirit or the flesh. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the Spirit. What do you think about most of the time? Why do you suppose there's a 12 billion dollar pornography business in this country online? 12 billion dollars worth of pornography every year online. 
It's one of the biggest national products we have. Why do you suppose? Because people are feeding the flesh. They're not feeding the spirit. We have guys in the dorm at Dallas Christian College that we have to talk to about pornography. Some of them are so addicted. Some of them get married and are addicted to pornography. And their wife, the wife feels like she's being cheated on every time he turns on the computer. And she is. When you look at pornography, guys, there's a chemical that's put into your brain that puts that image on your brain, and it will never go away. The chemical's called serotonin. It's the same chemical that's produced when you go through a car wreck that speeds your brain up and everything seems to be slow motion. And you can remember every bit of it, every trauma you go through, serotonin imprints that on the brain. And pornography does the same thing. Pornography poisons the mind. And we have a $12 billion business in this country. The mind of the flesh is death. The mind of the spirit is life and peace. You know, when you don't look at stuff like that, I was addicted to it when I became a Christian. I'd been in pornography for 15 years. And uh, when I became a Christian, I struggled. I was teaching at Dallas Christian College ten years later, still struggling. And for 17 years as a Christian, I struggled with pornography. And all that time I thought I was lost because I couldn't be saved. It wasn't good enough. But one day I discovered that Jesus loved me and had forgiven me. And when I internalized that, you know, I had the doctrine, but it had to get into my heart. And when I internalized that Jesus had forgiven me, I was able to forgive myself and I was delivered from pornography. A 22-year habit of pornography. A 32-year habit had gone away. I had a, I told this story in the Church of Christ, and two of the ministers came up afterwards and asked if they could talk to me, and both of them were addicted to pornography. One of them was married and had four kids, and his wife got gonorrhea from him because he'd been to prostitutes. A minister. See, that's the one sin a minister can't have. The flesh is death. The spirit is life and peace. You want joy and peace in your life? Stop this fleshly stuff and pay attention to what God says. Listen to the Spirit leading you. Listen to verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the Spirit. See, we need to be thinking about God and His Word all the time. Because as soon as you stop... Your flesh takes over. Verse 6, The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The spiritual mind 
I'm sorry, the, the fleshly mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. And so Paul says then immediately, you, however, are not controlled by the flesh, but by the Spirit. You see the difference here? The tug of war going on in our schizophrenic lives? The flesh versus the Spirit? The Spirit must win. The Spirit must put the flesh down. The Spirit must be in control. And if the Spirit's in control, you know, I told you chapter 7 after verse 6, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit and the struggle that Paul has. But when you go to chapter 8, the Holy Spirit's mentioned 19 times by many different names. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Holiness, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, God's Spirit. If the Spirit of Jesus lives in you, then you have life. And if you follow that Spirit, you have peace. So simple. But not so easy. Well, go down to uh, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. See, the question is, does Christ really live in you? If Christ lives in you, then your, your body is dead. You've been baptized, your body was buried, you're dead and buried. You've been destroyed. But your new self is sinless. He says, when you do sin, it's not really I that do it, it's sin that lives in me. So, your new life is, the real you is sinless. Because the real you is a spiritual being. And he goes on and says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, listen to the power there. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. Mortal means death bound. Our bodies are going to die. And Christ's Spirit in you will give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who lives in you. Want to live for, how many of you want to live forever? <laughs> I don't want to in this body, but I do want to live forever in an immortal body that God's promised to give me. You all aware of that? That we have a glorious body that He's going to give us? If we live according to the Spirit. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. It's the spirit that lives on. You know, most of us grew up believing in immortality of the soul, but that is a good Greek philosophy, but it's bad Bible. The Bible never teaches immortality of the soul. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6 that God alone has immortality. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says the mortal, talking about me and you, the mortal will put on immortality in the resurrection. And the corruptible, the rotting, will put on incorruption in the resurrection. 
So there's no such thing as an immortal soul. Yeah, animals are living souls in the Bible, just like people. The difference between us and the animals is we're made in the image of God. And he gives us his spirit so we can live the way he wants us to. So everybody in this room, listen, you have a choice. You can choose to live by the flesh and end up dying and going to hell, or you can choose to live by the Spirit and live forever with Jesus. Immortal, eternal life is never promised to the unbeliever. I don't believe the Bible teaches that people live forever in hell. I don't believe that. I know all the views of hell. I've read the books. But I think the biblical view of hell is very clear. Jesus says, don't fear him who can, who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The soul can be destroyed. According to Scripture, 22 times it says that each person will be repaid according to his deeds. Your deeds will either cause you to be punished or your deeds will cause you to be glorified. And when God judges us, he judges us on the basis of our deeds. We're saved by faith and judged by works. And our deeds are whatever we do to help other people. When you get to heaven, more you've done to help others, the higher your throne will be and the more glory you will have. See, our job is, you know, the great lie of Satan that came out of the mouth of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? The Bible answers that in a thousand ways. Yes! We are our brother's keeper. Our job is to protect and guard and help one another. And to treat others with the same respect that we want to be treated. Jesus said so. Even our enemies. Nobody taught like Jesus. Nobody else says, love your enemies. That's chaotic. That's nonsense. But that's what Jesus says. Jesus kind of switches the, the teaching of the world upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God reigns in them. Well, I'm not going to go through the rest of Romans 8. It deserves a week's study. But I simply want to say this. You can choose between living in Romans 7 or living in Romans 8. If you live in Romans 7, try to do it on your own. You'll struggle the rest of your life. But if you live in Romans 8, now see, here's the problem. We live in both because we're flesh and spirit. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will find peace and joy, and love, and God will provide everything for you. And in the next world, you will have a crown of life and righteousness and glory if you live by the Spirit. And so here we are struggling between these because we are both flesh and spirit. Choose to obey the Spirit. Now I want to go over to the most practical part where it begins in the book of Romans, chapter 12. I'm not going to spend much time here because we don't have much time, but I want to go to chapter 12 
and look at the first two verses, and you may have these memorized. Paul's writing to the Romans. He has laid out everything God has done for them. And now he says this, and everybody in this room needs to listen to this because it's God's word. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, how many of you caught the command there? Give your body to God. That's the first thing he says. You've got to give it to somebody. Give it to yourself, give it to Satan, or give it to God. And Paul's command here is, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. You know what the problem is with the living sacrifice? Always crawls off the altar. But our bodies are supposed to belong to God. Our bodies are a holy of holies that God lives in. Let me ask you this. Do you think God would have let Mary carry Jesus in her body if she had been a drunk or a drugger or viewed pornography or been immoral or done any of the things so many of us have done? Do you think God would have let Mary carry Jesus around in a sinful body like that? But what we don't realize... Jesus says, if you obey my word, my Father and I will come and make our home in you. John fourteen twenty three. His promise is that he and his Father will come into us through the Holy Spirit and live in us. What kind of people should we be if the whole Trinity is living in us? At least as holy as Mary. She must have been an amazing woman probably very, very young. And she becomes pregnant. In the history of the world, nothing like this has ever happened before. She becomes pregnant without a man in her life. And when she tells her husband, God sent an angel to me and told me I'm going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and I can hear Joseph say, mm-hmm, sure. We believe you. And he decided to put her away privately, remember? You know, this is only mentioned in Luke and Matthew and then never again. Uh, It was probably an embarrassment in the early church. Because here was a woman pregnant out of wedlock. But not from a man. From God. And when God revealed that to Joseph, he immediately planned, made plans and married her. Joseph obeyed, but he was having a hard time believing Mary. You all know that women were not allowed to give testimony in court. Women were not allowed to sit on juries back then. Women were third-class citizens. On every list of the class of people, the bottom thing on the list is slaves and then women. Women were property to be owned by the men. This is like the Taliban. It's like Islam. Women are property. 
You can tell a lot about religion by how they treat their women. How does Christ treat women? Women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Women supported Jesus out of their own income. Jesus spoke with women just as he did with men. He treated them with the same respect he treated men. And Jesus levels all of us. I I suggest to you men that you go to 1 Corinthians 7 and take a piece of paper and draw a line in the middle and put men on one side and women on the other and then write down everything Paul says about men and women and you will see exact equality between men and women under grace. Paul says there's no such thing as male or female, but we're all sons of God through faith in Christ. Women are on the same level as men. Women can bear the sign of the covenant in the New Testament. In the Old Testament was circumcision, and women couldn't do that. I know in some cultures they actually circumcise women, which simply is destruction. But circumcision automatically relegated women to a second place, but baptism can be for men and for women. The first person won in Philadelphia, uh, in, uh, in uh, Philippi, was a woman named Lydia, and she was baptized just like a man would be. Well, what kind of people ought we to be? Give your body to God. Your body doesn't belong to you. You have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. Your body belongs to God. You are a living sacrifice. God lives in you. So your body must be kept like a temple, a holy place for God to live in. That's the first command. Second command. Don't be conformed to this world any longer. I like Philip's translation here. He says, don't let this world squeeze you into its own mold. Don't let TV tell you. Don't let the Internet tell you how to live. Let God tell you how to live. Don't be conformed to the world. Dead fish float along with the current. But live fish fight to go upstream. Don't let the world set your values for you. Don't be conformed to this world. This age is one of the most polluted age in the history of America. We've taken God out of everything, taken God out of school so murderers go to school. Now every school has metal detectors and, you know, it's just gotten to the place where it's an armed camp. I remember back in the 60s walking straight into an airplane uh, walking straight into an airport and into an airplane never went through anything. And then somebody bombed a plane. And here we go. Take off your shoes. Take off your belt. And then try to keep your pants up as you go through. You know, nobody trusts anybody anymore. It's a tragedy. As long as God is removed from our culture, nobody's listening. 
Don't let this world tell you how to live. It is natural for you to give your body to God since you're a Christian. Now, third command. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can you, how can you renew your mind? You want to know what God's thoughts are? They're all right here. Not all of them. I mean, we're near all of them, but all of them that we can handle. They're right here. If you want your mind to be renewed, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to deal with that word transformed. It's used four times in the Bible. The Greek word is metamorphosis. Recognize it? Two times it's used for Jesus when he goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them. He's brilliant. And they fall on their faces in fear because his face is like lightning. And then two times it's used for us. One of them is right here. Be transformed, be metamorphosized by the renewal of your mind. And you will find out what God's will is for your life. His good, acceptable, and pleasing will. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Give your body to God. Don't let the world tell you what to do. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renew your mind by filling it with the Word of God. Let the Holy Spirit dwell inside you. Let the Word fill you. Man, oh man. This is what it's about. Being transformed by the renewing of the mind. God doesn't come in get our emotions going for nothing he wants us to renew our minds he gives us a tremendous amount to learn and I've been working at it I'm 74 years old I've been studying the Bible for 54 years And I still have a tremendous amount to learn. And I teach both Greek and Hebrew, so I study the Old and the New Testament in the original languages. And it's like reading it in technicolor instead of black and white. It's just incredible. There's so much here. This word metamorphosis is used one other place by the Apostle Paul to refer to us. Out of Exodus 34, when Moses comes down the mountain, you remember? His face is glowing. Wherever he turns, there's a beam of light coming off his face. And the people run from him. And he tells them what God said. And he puts a veil over his face. Paul's writing about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Moses puts the veil over his face so the people won't see the brightness on his face fading, fading. Paul says that means the Old Testament glory. Even though it came with great glory, God on the mountain shaking the place, lightning, thunder, blowing trumpets, earthquake, that's glorious, but it faded away. He says the Old Testament fades away. But we are just the opposite. 
Our faces are getting brighter and brighter. Paul says we're being transformed, transformed. There's that word. Metamorphosized. From one degree of glory to another until we become just like Jesus. In the spirit realm, I said it the other night. C.S. Lewis said if you could see yourself as you really are, you would want to fall down and worship yourself. We are glorious divine beings. We will shine like the stars in the universe. We will be like Jesus, Scripture teaches. We will be transformed. In the twinkling of an eye, to be like Jesus. That's the hope of the Christian. I'm going to quit. See what questions you have. But let me give you one illustration from Peter Marshall's book, Mr. Jones, Meet the Master. He talks about a bunch of woolly worms that were good buddies. And these woolly worms hung out together all the time, and they liked one another. And one day one of those woolly worms went and spun himself a little chrysalis shroud to hang on a bush. And the other woolly worms gathered around and extolled his virtues. They said he was a good caterpillar. And he was a connoisseur of fine cabbage. And now he's gone to a place where there's row upon row of cabbages. And Peter Marshall says, little do they know that in the fullness of time when that chrysalis shroud bursts open and there emerges this moist, trembling creature that hoists colored sails up to the sky and flies away over the fence to sip the dew and the honey. Now that is metamorphosis. God is going to transform us into something so far beyond what we are now that we have a glorious future to look forward to. Twice for Jesus, twice for us. That's our hope. We'll be like him. We'll look in the mirror one day and see his reflection coming out in brilliance. Any comments or questions? Chapter 7, 8, or this section here. Yes, sir. For example? Oh, yeah. If. Yeah. There are four uh, Greek forms of the word if. One of them means since. It's a fact. You know, like when Satan comes up to Jesus out in the desert and says, if you're the son of God, Satan believes who he, he knows who he is. He says, since you're the Son of God. That's called a first-class condition. But there are three other conditions. The one we have there in Romans 8, 9 is since. Since the Spirit of God lives in you. Uh, therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's only in the King James. That's actually moved up from a from a verse down below. Uh, but but it's still true. Uh, those who walk according to the Spirit. Uh, some of the ifs include some doubt. And there's one that's called an optative mode if, which is a fourth class condition, which means it's probably contrary to reality. But Romans 8 9 is, since the Spirit of Christ lives in you. And there are several other places like that. Good question. No, even if it is conditional, we know that God says the Spirit's in us, so we know the Spirit is in us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we still have a choice. This is an amazing thing. We were... We were predestined. You know, Romans 8.29 says, Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. There's five past tense verbs there. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, Past tense. We've already been glorified. We just can't see it. Our eyes are not spiritual. God did it all. But our job is to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that he can be the firstborn among many brothers. I always wondered how could Jesus be the only begotten Son of God and yet firstborn among many brothers. Well, only begotten is his relationship with the Father. Firstborn is his relationship with us. Yeah. God does it all from beginning to end. Our job is simply to fit in to his plan and be formed to be like Christ. See, John says, if you want to be like Jesus, you need to purify yourself, even as Jesus is pure. That's our job. I mean, that's why we're Christians. We believe in Jesus so we can become like him. And put to death the deeds of the flesh in us. Stop sinning. That's the message of the gospel. Stop sinning. Other questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. Last night? Mm-hmm. When we die, as Jesus told the thief on the cross, today will be with me in paradise. A paradise isn't even a Greek word. It's a, it's a, a, a Persian word. But apparently it's the closest to reality after you die. Paradise is a garden or a park that you go to to live. And Jesus will be there. And the Spirit will be there. And our friends will be there. And then when it's time that God tells him, now go get your bride for the second coming, he comes and gets us and takes us back to the earth with him and gives us new bodies 
And then we go up into heaven with him. And we're always with the Lord, Paul says. So heaven is where God lives. Paradise is where Jesus is waiting on us with our relatives and friends. Yeah. Yeah. God will be with us. Well, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that we will all live together. God, God has always just wanted to be with his people. That's all he's wanted. And he wants people to love him. Everything he's done is to get us to love him. You know, he's not lonely or anything. He always had the Father, Son, and Spirit, and they could share forever, but he, he wanted to share the love and the wealth. You know, why do we have kids? Because we want to share our love with those kids. And we want to leave them our wealth, you know, both dollars we have left when we die. You know? Yeah. Uh, but God, I think God created us to, to enjoy Him. To appreciate Him. To love Him. And if we can just love God, our lives will be wonderful. I'll tell you, I, you know, I still struggle sometimes with sin, but I have an incredible relationship with God. It gets better all the time. It's not because of me. It's because He has pursued me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that God must become more and more important. I think the word worship comes from an old English worship that God is so valuable. You know, He can create. I don't know if you've seen the Hubble telescope images. But he's created things that we can't even see with our eyes that are so glorious and beautiful. There is a, uh, a huge, uh, well, you know, there's two billion galaxies that they know of, and they're all bigger than the Milky Way. And we've got trillions of stars in ours. How, can, how, how great is God? He created the star Antares, that if you put that star where our sun is, it would engulf the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and another hundred million miles into space in all directions. It is an enormous star. And David says, the work of your fingers. You know, when God created all these universes, for him it was like make an artist making a postage stamp. God is so much bigger than anything we can imagine. And he's so holy. And Hebrews says, without holiness, no one can please God. No one will see God. Our holiness comes from Jesus. He forgives our sins, and then he wants us to become holy. Here's his promise. Hebrews 10:14. By one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever all those who are becoming holy. 
See, God sees us as perfect in his son. But we see ourselves as slowly improving and becoming more holy. And that means we're saved. If we're becoming more holy, God sees us as perfect. God is worth everything. Give up the silver and the gold to know God. Paul says, to know him and the power of his resurrection is why I'm living. That goes beyond anything this world has to offer. Everything on this world is going to burn. Second Peter says it's all going to melt away and be dissolved with a hiss. Since it's going to be destroyed this way, what kind of people should we be? You know, the old world, the old universe is going to burn up and God's going to replace it with a brand new one, Scripture says. And that's when the holy city comes down to us. In a new heavens and a new earth. For the old heavens and the old earth have passed away. John says in First John, the darkness is passing away. And that's this world where Satan rules. And Jesus even calls Satan the God of this world. And he is. He seems so strong. I mean, evil seems so strong. But good is always going to win. Truth always beats lie. I was telling one of the guys earlier, might have been Mick, uh, <clears throat> we, were, uh, we were talking about a Satan and God arguing, and Satan said, I can do anything you can do. And God said, oh, well, let's make a man. So he got down, started scraping the dirt together, and breathed into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. And God said, now you do that. So Satan gets down, starts scraping the dirt, and, wait, and God said, wait a minute, get your own dirt. I made this! This is mine! See, all Satan can do is take what God has made good and twist it and pervert it. And he's a, he's a lunatic and a liar. And if he thinks he can whip God, you know, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. There he is, the Almighty, the All-Powerful. I think I can take him. Uh, come on. That's just ridiculous. Thank you all so much. I had a great week with you.